0: You this morning? Would you open with me to John 15 again? John 15 in your Bibles. Um, Just a correction here that I was Gary told me about in your worship guide Uh, on the reading we just did. The worship guide has "We delight in your statues" instead of your statutes, and so we just wanted to make it very clear to our guests that we that we do not worship any statues in here. So, Thank you, Gary, for pointing that out. So John 15, thats uh, you can find that on page 901 in the Pew Bible. And uh, if you are a guest today and, and don't have a copy of God's Word, would you pay a visit to the book nook folks in the back after the service? There's a shelf with some books and Bibles and things, and they'll set you up, and we'll endure that cost as a church if it means getting God's Word into your hands. So I just want our guests to know that. So I'm going to focus, John 15, I'm going to focus on verses 7 to 11, but I'm going to begin reading in verse 1 to give us some better context. Always a good practice to read parts in light of the whole so, verse 1 in chapter 15 of John's Gospel. I am the true vine, and my Father is the fine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. So have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I do ask that you would come now and attend the preaching of your word with your Holy Spirit, that you would fill us each with him and that you would use this word to conform us more to Christ, that that you would build into our lives healthy disciplines by which we might abide in him That you would so fill us with his life that we long to run in the way of his word. Never turning to the right or to the left of it. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, two weeks ago we encountered a very significant image in the Bible, describing a Christian's uh, union with with Christ. A Christian's union with Christ is like uh, a branch abiding in a vine, a branch that's constantly uh, drawing its its nourishment from the vine uh, so that it bears fruit. And we also saw that Jesus doesn't pull this image out of thin air He actually uses the vine image to connect his life and his mission with the Old Testament's storyline. Israel was often called God's vine. It's just that Israel kept bearing bad fruit that robbed God of his glory. And so God destroyed them. He destroyed the vine. But that didn't mean that God had forsaken His promises to Israel. It just meant that God's dealings with Israel anticipated another vine, a superior vine, a vine that would always bear good fruit and bring God glory. Well, Jesus, we saw, completes that storyline. He is the true vine. Everything Israel was supposed to be and wasn't, Jesus is. And that means He is our only hope for life and fellowship with God. Jesus is our only access to all of God's promises for salvation. Our lives won't bring God glory and cannot bring God glory without constantly relying on Jesus for everything. That's what we looked at two weeks ago. We might call that the why of this passage. Why would we abide in Jesus and in no one else? Well, because He, unlike Israel, is the true vine. Why would we depend on Jesus instead of ourselves? Well, because only in Jesus do you obtain God's promise for salvation. Why would we draw from Jesus to live the Christian life? Well, because only in Jesus is the grace you need to bring God glory in the world. So we might say verses 1 to 6 explain why... We would abide in Christ. Well, today we look at how we abide in Christ. And Jesus mentions two ways in particular that we abide in Him word based prayer and loving obedience. If you ask Jesus, all right, I've got all the vine imagery down, you are the real deal, I've got nothing without you. How do I actually do this? How do I actually abide in you, though? What does it actually look like as my life plays out? His first two answers, from this passage at least, are prayer and obedience. Now, please hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that prayer and obedience gets you into the vine. They don't get you into a relationship with God. Jesus is speaking these words to disciples that he has already joined to himself. He's already put them in the vine by the word He has spoken. We see that in verse 3, already you are clean. We talked about what that meant. All these other disciples have have fallen away over time, proving they were never truly united to Jesus. That wasn't the case for these eleven. They're left. They're sticking with Jesus because Jesus has united united them to Himself. So Jesus has already joined these eleven to Himself. There's a life giving union between them that Jesus already established by virtue of his word and what he's going to do on the cross to back up that word. He's instructing these kinds of disciples the kinds of disciples already drawing from his nourishment. He's telling them what it looks like to abide in him, and it looks like prayer and obedience. So if you're a Christian today, that's where we're going, abiding in Jesus through word-based prayer and loving obedience. Meaning we, we can't expect to bear any fruit for God's glory if we're not praying and if we're not obeying. So let's look at both of these more carefully. First of all, let's look at word-based prayer. Word-based prayer is how we continue abiding in Jesus, or word-inspired prayer, Whatever is easier for you. And I get this from verse 7 primarily, but I want us to look at verses 7 to 8 together so you kind of see a bigger picture here. So these two verses fit together like an unbroken uh, chain. And it shows us how the, the word and the prayer fit in with all of the, the vine imagery and the bearing fruit and, and so forth. Uh, one thing to note before I read it, though, is verse 4. Jesus says, abide in me and I in you. And then again in verse 5, whoever abides in me and I in him. There's, a, there's this reciprocal relationship between the vine and the branches When we abide in Jesus, so much of His life is flowing through us that Jesus Himself is living in us. That right there should keep us from reducing a relationship with Jesus to being sort of mechanical. Uh, the, The idea that Christian life amounts to just reading another holy book, saying the right prayers, doing the right things, without any spiritual vitality. That's not at all what Jesus is saying about our relationship with Him. True Christianity is about a real, vital, intimate relationship with the person of Jesus. His real presence living in In us, by the Spirit. If He isn't living in you like that, then you do not have a relationship with Jesus. You are not in the vine. But when you you are in the vine, by faith, He lives there, by the Spirit. At the same time, though, our spiritual relationship with Jesus should never slip into some sort of unintelligible mysticism. As if abiding in Jesus is some kind of esoteric experience, apart from the way God has revealed himself in the Bible. Some Christians fall into this sort of error. Everything with Jesus becomes experiential, cut off from God's word. Jesus' point here is that for him to truly abide in you, and you in him, is to have his word abiding in you. In a morally transforming and prayer-compelling way. You can write those two things down. For Jesus to abide in you is for His Word to abide in you in a morally transforming and prayer-compelling way. Now, verse 7. If you abide in Me and My words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. So he hasn't left the vine imagery. He's just explaining it. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So here's the chain I was referring to earlier. It's on the screen for you. I think, yep, there it is. And that's about the extent of my creativity. Uh, The green arrows represent a vine. So, uh, of some sort. So let me work backwards here. From God's glory to abiding in the Word. So God gets glory when Jesus' disciples bear much fruit. Fruit comes by depending on Jesus in prayer. And then prayer stems, it's, it's uh, fostered from Jesus' Word abiding in us. So this whole goal, the whole goal of abiding in Jesus and Jesus' words, abiding in us, is that we bear fruit for God's glory. And In fact, that's what the, 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 the fruit Jesus produces is. It is all that we actively pursue by faith in Christ to bring God glory in the world. So if you want a definition of fruit from this passage... There you go. It's all that we actively pursue by faith in Christ to bring God glory in the world. From pursuing individual holiness, Paul picks this up in Ephesians 5, to loving the saints, John, uh, uh, Jesus is going to pick that up in verses 16 and 17 below, uh, to winning converts. We see Jesus in uh, John chapter 4, gathering fruit from etern- for eternal life from among the Samaritans. So, individual holiness, winning, uh, loving the saints, winning converts, this is the fruit Jesus produces that brings God glory in the world. But notice, the fruit of bringing God glory comes through prayer. Not apart from prayer, through prayer. And in particular, word-based prayer. Here's what I mean. We know from John 1.1, 1, 1, Jesus is the Word. Right? He is the Word who became flesh. And one thing I love about John's Gospel is um, when John starts, so Jesus is the Word, Jesus is the bread, Jesus is the bridegroom, Jesus is. once he starts these themes, it's not like he picks up the Word in chapter 1 and just drops it and then picks up another theme and then drops it. Once he starts them, they're all running together like this and just stacking on top of each other throughout uh, his gospel. It makes it incredibly rich. But we've got Jesus as the Word in John 1, 1. And now now he's called the vine. We've got Word and vine here. So when you share a relationship with Jesus, the person of Christ... When you're connected to this word vine by faith, you live off of His wordness. ness okay? you, you feed on God's self-revelation in Jesus and through Jesus, coming out of His mouth. When you're in the vine, the vine's words become your bread and your drink for eternal life. And when these words become part of you, the branch, they begin growing you. They begin transforming you, right? Having Jesus' words abide in you doesn't mean we simply know His words. We have an intellectual grasp of His words. There are plenty of examples in Scripture where where people know God's word and yet Jesus still says it doesn't actually abide in them. I'm thinking in particular of John chapter 5 and John chapter 8 where He's talking to the religious authorities. They know the Bible. They search the scriptures as if life itself depended on it. And yet Jesus tells them, you don't have God's word abiding in you. How in the world can he say that? He can say it because of the fruit that they were bearing. They love the praise of men. And he saw it from a mile away. They're trying to kill him. In fact, the fruit of their lives, Jesus says, look just like the fruit of someone, else that he, who, of someone else who knows the word really well, except twists it for his own ends, the devil himself. So having Jesus' words abide in you can't merely, merely mean knowing it. It must also mean that his words live in you in a morally transforming way. They transform your rebellious soul into a soul that loves and wants to be like Jesus they change everything about you so that you follow Jesus and learn to want what He wants. This, is, of course, this, of course, happens by the Holy Spirit applying God's truth to us. That also means the Word begins to shape your longings and compelling you to pray for God to be glorified through you. One of the things the Spirit does with the Word is make us more self-forgetting and more Christ-dependent. What happens when we encounter God's Word rightly? We become more self-forgetting and more Christ-dependent. The Word exposes our neediness before God, that our cup is totally empty without Him. It reveals that a fruitless life robs God of the glory due His name. And so we, knowing that we're empty, knowing that we can bear no fruit to bring God glory, we cry out, Father, make us more like Jesus so that our lives bring You praise. I can do nothing without You. Help me, fill me, so that the way I love my wife displays the way Jesus loves His wife, the church. So that the way I care for my children reflects your holy love and long-suffering. So that the way I endure this trial increases the volume of worship on earth. So that the way I sacrifice might move others at work to ask me about the hope that is within me, found in Jesus. I was talking to a brother earlier this week, and he was telling me about how he's fighting stinginess with money. And he's currently studying Psalm 112, which talks about what God's sort of man looks like. And Psalm 112, verse 9 says, God's man has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. So, my brother then says that that word not only called him to distribute his money freely, it also reminded him of Jesus, who is the ultimate picture of God's sort of man. He gave up his life for us, poor sinners in desperate need of grace. And because of that gift, he will live forever with him in a glorious inheritance that puts all earthly treasures to shame. Well, this then informs his prayers for God to change him, for God to make him more like Christ, for God to open his eyes to all that he already possesses in Jesus and that frees him to give generously to all. This is what abiding in Christ looks like from day to day. It looks like Jesus' words being so much a part of our being, so woven into the fabric of our lives, that prayers ascend from our lips for Jesus to produce God-glorifying fruit. J.C. Ryle once put it like this. To abide in Christ means to keep up a habit of constant ...close communion with Him, to be always leaning on Him, resting on Him, pouring our hearts out to Him, and using Him as our fountain of life and strength, as our chief companion and best friend. To have His Word abiding in us is to keep His sayings and precepts continually before our memories and minds and make them the guide of our actions ...and the rule of our daily conduct and behavior. We abide in Jesus through word-based prayer. This shouldn't surprise us, really, because... uh, ...again and again throughout Scripture, we see both both the word and prayer coming together. For example, one of the longest prayers in the Bible is on the word of God, Psalm 119. And one of the ways the church finds strength to spread the gospel in Acts chapter 4... ...is by praying the word... They pray the word of Psalm 2. Also, the apostles always put measures in place so that the men leading the church were men who were devoted to the word and prayer. Then Paul also connects prayer uh, in the Christian life. When we wield the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, when we wield it against the enemy, we always do so praying at all times, he says. So we shouldn't be surprised to find Jesus bringing them together here for us. What, we sh- what this should do, though, is lead us to evaluate if this is how we're abiding in Christ. I think many of us, many, many of the people that, that I know in this congregation, you want spiritual vitality. We want to look more like Jesus. We don't want to spend our lives in vain. We want true transformation and to know the abundant life of following Jesus. We don't want to just be content with it. We want to be thriving and flourishing. We want healing in our marriages. We want a rich contentment in Jesus to overcome our loneliness. We want to overcome the temptations toward anger or sloth. We want to bring God glory with our lives. The only problem is that sometimes we want those things apart from giving ourselves to the Word and prayer. And that's not abiding in the vine. That's abiding in self. Abiding in the vine is letting God's Word take up residence within you and crying for Him to conform your life to that Word. To neglect the Word and prayer is to pretend like you know of a better way to save yourself, of a better way to change yourself, other than Jesus We cannot claim to abide in Jesus and do an end around the word in prayer. Letting the word transform us and devoting ourselves to prayer is how we abide in Jesus. The word reveals him to us and our prayers go up to make us more like him. So here's a question. Are you reading the word regularly? Abiding in Jesus means having his words abide in you. How are His words getting lodged into your soul from day to day? Some of you need to take steps to make Bible intake a priority. Setting aside time to read the Word. Establishing a Bible reading plan that fits the rhythms of your day. And if they don't, you change the rhythms. If you're married... Husbands, we have got to take the lead here. You've got to take the lead in serving your wife in this crucial way. That includes taking the kids regularly, fixing dinner after her long day, so that she can sit with the Word alone. You're going to have to determine when that's best for your household. It also includes leading your wife and the family in the Word through Discipline times like, say, family worship, and through spontaneous, God-given moments throughout the day. If you're single and desire more accountability in your Bible intake, find a brother or sister that you can read the scriptures with regularly. All of us can even memorize scripture together through the Fighter Verse plan. Gary posts that for us on the front of the worship guide every week. And next week's verse is always posted down here, or you can find it on the, on the web. Having Jesus' word abide in us doesn't happen automatically. Not like carrying our Bibles or have it on our iPhone and it's just sort of getting absorbed. We've got to sit down and read it. It takes effort, especially when the enemy would prefer it not to be in us. And once Jesus' words are in us, we have to ask, are we meditating on the word repentantly? Meaning, how are Jesus' words driving us away from sin and and away from the idols of our hearts and away from the devil's lies and away from our self-sufficiency and into deeper fellowship with Jesus and deeper dependence on Jesus? For his words to abide means for his words to transform that means we must not, we must not uh, read simply to know. We must also read to obey, to repent, to turn from sin, to cultivate godly affections, to, to thrill our souls with Jesus' glory. And we will only see Jesus' glory rightly here. And then lastly, as we begin seeing the, the, the many ways the Word should transform us, we should make those matters of fervent prayer. Fervent, fervent prayer for ourselves, fervent prayer for this church. The word should shape our prayers and our longings. It's, as Jesus, it's just as Jesus teaches elsewhere, your kingdom come and your will be done. Prayer isn't about God doing what we want, but about us doing what God wants. His word sets the agenda for our prayers. When Jesus says, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you, the assumption is that his abiding word has already shaped your passions and your requests. God isn't promising to give us just anything to accommodate our self-centered plans. But He is promising to give us anything that we need to bring Him glory with our lives. And that should come to you as both a challenge and an encouragement. It comes as a challenge because right there it challenges our self-centered desires in prayer. But it should also come as an encouragement in that God promises you everything that you need to bring Him glory to bear good fruit. Whatever you need in any circumstance, in any relationship, at any time, God promises to give you all that you need to bear fruit. His ears stand ready with loving attention to your requests, and His vine is rich with grace to replenish you, sustain you, and grow you into what you need to be to bring Him glory. John Calvin described prayer as the chief exercise of faith by which we daily receive God's benefits. What if we viewed our quiet times that way? Not merely as a discipline, though it is that, but as the way branches access the rich life that is in the vine. So those are some steps for us to take together as we abide in Christ reading the word regularly meditating on the word repentantly and praying the word fervently. And as we do may God be pleased to bear much fruit. Second way Jesus says we abide in him is through loving obedience. Look at verses 9 and 10. As the Father has loved me so have I loved you abide in my love. Now, notice what Jesus has just done before we move on to verse 10. He has just revealed the basis of our relationship with Him. The basis of our relationship with Him is not first our obedience. It is first and foremost a matter of the Father's love for Jesus. Because of who Jesus is and what Jesus does. And then stemming from that love is the Son's love for us which we know is most pointedly displayed in the cross. Then he says, abide in my love. And he doesn't just mean the love that I possess in and of myself. He means the love that I have directed towards you. Unworthy as you are, the love that I have directed towards you. You stay there in that love. You rest there and you as a branch draw from that love. And that's really huge because the obedience he talks about in verse 10 must be understood in that light in light of the love relationship between the Father and the Son, and from the Son moving then towards us. That's why our obedience is loving obedience. There's a love relationship already established. Now read verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. So he still hasn't left the vine imagery of abiding. It's just that now it gets tweaked a bit to include Jesus' love. To abide in Jesus is to abide in Jesus' love. Well, how do we do that? Verse 10 says we keep his commandments, just like he kept his Father's commandments. This is pretty remarkable. Jesus is saying that our love relationship with Jesus is built on and patterned after Jesus' love relationship with his Father. You know, it would be later in chapter uh, 17 when he's praying for his disciples to be one and that for, his disi- for his love to, to, to be in them and for them to love each other. And all of this is so that the world might know that the Father has sent the Son. So the way we live in this world reflects the redemption that God has achieved as Father and Son and Spirit. It's incredible. So, our love relationship with Jesus is built on and patterned after Jesus' love relationship with his Father. The example and incentive of our abiding in Christ is the pattern of love we observe in the very being of the Godhead. As Son, Jesus always obeys his Father, and for that reason, his Father always loves the Son. Now, I'm bringing together two, two scriptural truths there. The Father loves the Son just because of who the son is, but there's also a sense in Scripture, another stream of biblical evidence that says the Father loves the son because the son is always obeying him. So those two things come together, but so the Father all, uh, Jesus always obeys his Father, and for that reason, the Father always loves the Son. The same with us. Part of our love relationship with Jesus includes. Obedience. As disciples, we abide in Jesus' love through obedience to his commands. How could it be otherwise? In the same way that we see the Father's authority and the Father's worth and the Father's glory shining through the Son's obedience. The world must see the Son's authority and the Son's worth and the Son's authority, glory. I already said that one. Through our obedience. It doesn't say much about Jesus if we ignore him, it doesn't say much about our love for Jesus if we ignore his words. How can we truly love Him without also loving what He calls us to do with our lives? It's not like He commands us to obey for our disadvantage. He's not driving us with a whip like Pharaoh did to Israel in Egypt. He speaks only for your advantage. Read verse 11. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Why does He tell us to keep His commandments? Why does He tell us to abide in His love? To lift our cries of dependence to Him? To saturate our minds with His word? Because He knows where true joy flourishes. It flourishes in Him and in His relationship with His Father, which He has brought you into with His death and resurrection. Fullness of joy doesn't come by listening to our fleshly lusts or to the world's vanity or to the enemy's sugar-coated lies. Fullness of joy comes by listening to our sovereign Lord when He speaks. Right? Are you with me? There's no other joy in the universe that's superior to the joy of Jesus Christ, the Almighty God. None. None. You're talking about the heavenly intense pleasure and uncontainable delight erupting from the love relationship between the infinitely glorious Father and the infinitely glorious Son, and He speaks so that we might gain that very joy. That the joy He experiences through obeying His Father might become our joy in following Him, in being united to Him, in drawing from Him. That doesn't mean obedience will always be chipper and filled with cloud-dancing double hill clicks while everybody sings, everything is awesome. <laughs> Jesus is going to the cross. I want my joy to be in you. Yeah, and I'm about to die. And... He's going to tell the disciples that their obedience will bring about persecution and suffering as well. And your obedience might cost you a relationship. It might cost you a job. These are unpleasant. It might bring great sorrow between family members. It may mean you endure with difficult patience the sins of others. It may mean you make choices that hurt for a a long time. But somehow, in this obedience, Jesus promises we'll have a joy that the world not only cannot comprehend, it cannot provide. It's much like the joy we see in Hebrews twelve two. For the joy set before Him, Jesus endured the cross, despising its shame, and He now sits at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider Him who endured such great hostility from sinners in order that we might not grow weary and lose heart. He knew what joy was. He knew that joy was found in the reward of His Father's glorious presence. He knew that true joy would be found in the reward of His bride, the church, as a result of His death and seeing them enthroned Uh, around the throne, worshiping the Father and the Son. And so He made obedience to the Father His chief pursuit. The same for us, brothers and sisters. One day the skies will be rolled back like a scroll and the joy of the triune God will swallow up every one of our sorrows and every pain we ever experienced in the path of obedience to Jesus. Obedience is worth it, though, because Jesus' joy is worth it. Jesus' commandments aren't meant to make our days gray with guilt, but dazzling with present and future delight in all that God is for us in the Son. All He tells us to do is for our good. So the most joyful place for you and I to live is in obedience to Jesus. True joy doesn't come when we follow our flesh into the comforts of this life. Joy comes when we embrace the way of the cross, and the way of the cross is death to our self-centered ways to live for God's glory. So listen, we cannot, experience, we cannot expect to experience more of Jesus' love and more of Jesus' Jesus's joy while we're still clutching to our sins. And how we need to hear that this morning, because far more common in our day is for church leaders to gloss over the necessity of obedience in the Christian life, and they're cutting people off from joy. According to Jesus, the call to obedience is a call to joy. And it's a call to joy because it's a call to enjoy being loved by the Son, as He is loved, by the Father for His total obedience. And here's what I want to close, and, and here's where I want to close and lead us into the Lord's Supper. Many of you are surveying your life right now. You're looking at the perfection of Jesus rightly. The perfection of Jesus' obedience to the Father in verse 11. And you're comparing your obedience to the supreme standard that's found in Jesus' obedience. And it's absolutely crushing. We're not okay in our love. We are lacking in it. And we're going, that's how I'm supposed to abide in Jesus' love? That's the condition? How could I even come close? And if my obedience is imperfect, what does that mean for my experience of Jesus' joy? Well, hear the good news embedded in verses 9 and 10. Again. Jesus says that His love for you is grounded in the Father's love for the Son. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you, He says. And throughout John's Gospel... We have seen that the Father loves the Son because the Son is going to give His life for the people the Father gave to Him. The Father loves Jesus because Jesus is always the obedient Son. Everything that He does pleases the Father. And that includes what He does for the people the Father gave Him. Then notice how Jesus says in verse 10, I have kept all my, father, my Father's commandments and I abide in His love. And here's why that's good news. Where you don't meet the conditions of obedience perfectly, Jesus already did. God's Son became a man and lived in perfect obedience to His Father. His obedience to the Father even led to His death on the cross where you may find forgiveness for all your sinful shortcomings. More than that, God raised him from the dead and planted him as his right hand in heaven and in him is all the strength that you need to live as he has called you to live. Jesus met all the conditions necessary for you to be joined to the vine and he ever lives so that you enjoy abiding in his love. Listen, he kept his father's commandments and abides in his father's love so that you can follow him by feeding on that love that he achieved, that he has with his Father, that you might rest in that love and draw from that love daily. Never once does he say to his disciples, keep my commandments without also telling them of his own work and grace to give them everything they need to keep them. His love and forgiveness, a right relationship with him, and all all the daily graces they need to follow him. When you come to the Lord's Supper today, yes, remember how far short your love for Christ falls. But then celebrate as you eat, knowing that everywhere your love falls short, His love goes the distance. He loved you by obeying even to the point of death under God's wrath. And this is why we can take and eat and drink together today. This is why we can lift our voices to Him in thanksgiving and adoration. This is why we are in the vine to begin with. Some of you may not be in the vine yet. Some of you may not know this intimate fellowship with Jesus we've been talking about. Some of you couldn't care less about the word of His grace. The good news of the gospel is the same for you, as I have just told everybody else in here. We are saved not by our own doings. We were put in the vine by Jesus' doings. And we are saved simply by drawing on all that He is for us, by receiving, by resting on all that He is for us. So the charge for you who may not know Christ yet is the same, to trust in Him, And He will grant you life in Himself. He will put you in the vine when you believe. And you will know what eternal life is. You too will will draw from His grace and strength every day. So let's draw together now more from His grace as we come to the Lord's table.